Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, the 13th of September, and I may sound a little scratchy because I'm coming over a wireless connection on my phone. I apologize for that. Our special guest is Shelley Blake Plock. Shelley, welcome. Hi there, everybody. Oh, good. You're there. Sure glad to have you here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for their support. If you missed the Learning 2.0 conference, you've heard about it from me forever, but all the recordings are up worth looking at, learning20.com. Coming up in October is the Future of Libraries conference, the 3rd through the 5th. This is getting really exciting. It is free, it is worldwide, and we're still accepting presentation proposals until the end of this week. That's at library2012.com or library20.com. And then the Global Education Conference, the five-day, 24-hour day, worldwide event, November 12th to 16th. Lucy Gray's doing a great job getting a lot lined up there. Very much fun. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, I talked to Jamie Vollmer on his, about his book called Schools Cannot Do It Alone. Charles Fidel talks to us about a curriculum that's focused on what students should learn in the 21st century. And then Bob Gliner talks to us about his film, Schools That Change Communities. Should be a lot of fun. Nikhil Goyal, the week after that, on his new book, uh, Ron Rith Rich Hart on Making Thinking Visible. And then this exciting panel. I'm just so excited about this panel. Dave Cormier, Alec Coro, Stephen Downs, Rita Kopp, George Siemens, Inget Award, and Carol Yeager on the real history of the MOOC. Anyway, lots more coming up there, hopefully something that will be of interest to you. All of the sessions are recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3. Tuesday night, we talked to Pat Feringa, who took over for John Holt. Um, that was a really fascinating discussion on sort of the roots of the homeschooling movement in the United States. Um, very much fun, Pat, very well-spoken, really good conversation. Norman's asking, can the recordings be downloaded? The MP3 versions can be, and on futureofeducation.com, there is a link there for a feed, or a podcast feed, or an iTunes feed as well. So for those of you with us, you have to the left of the map, you now see some icons. You're looking for the star. Double-click on that and click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. I'm in Brookings, Oregon, making my way toward Portland. And I could not find Wi-Fi, so my phone is serving as my hotspot. And I hope the audio quality is not too bad. Please do feel free to just keep shouting that out in the chat where you're participating from. And if you're listening to the recording, we thank you for doing so. There is a Mighty Bell space for tonight's conversation. I'll put the link in the chat. Mighty Bell is the content and curation site created by Gina Bianchini, who was the creator of Ning, 
I do consulting work for Gene. I really love this project. And if you want to keep the conversation going or put up links about the things we talk about tonight, you can do so at that link there. So Shelley, uh, I, you and I were both on, I led, but you and I were both on this panel on Beyond Top Down as a part of Connected Educator Month. And I felt a little bit like you were kind of the uh, rebel of the crowd uh, in, in the most positive ways. Uh, how did you feel that conversation went and what, was, what did you take away from it? It's, uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, in, in some ways I, I, I tend to have just something, uh, something inside of me uh, that uh, forces me to, uh, uh, to, 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 to sort of take on a fight. But I, I think that um, part of what was going on in that conversation was really um, there, you know, the, the, the topic being beyond top down, um, I think is honestly from an educator point of view, from point of view of the kind of work that I'm doing now, um, that is often the, uh, the, 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 the roadblock. That, that's often the wall in the way of a lot of educators in the sense that um, so many educators, their, their professional experience happens within this sort of chain of command culture. And I think that the kind of conversation that we were having, and I, I know where I wanted to push it, really sort of explodes that expectation of the role of the educator, sort of as a um, having a very discreet and a very um, defined role in a school, in the hierarchy of a school. Um, and I take a sort of very radically broad view of what it means to be an educator. And I don't think it's limited by perhaps what are some of the traditional expectations of, of what educators are supposed to do, where they're supposed to go to work, the way that they're supposed to interact with their peers, with students, with the community. Um, I think all of that is really up for grabs right now. I think we're sort of at a real moment that we've been sitting in this transition period, which I feel in some ways is like a holding period for the last five years with the sort of slow integration of participatory media in some places, reactions against these things in other places. And meanwhile, in industry, in business, in medicine, in journalism, in entertainment, in finance, it's, it's all moved past that. And here's education, once again, sort of a generation behind everything. And I sort of have it in my blood that as we actually move beyond um, the, the current state of the net into sort of the third iteration of the internet, um, I think we really have an opportunity. We've got some amazing educators, amazing leaders in education 
who really can be at the forefront of that movement. And maybe for the first time in, you know, 30, 35 years when it comes to the real, not just the integration of technology into education, not just the integration of innovative ideas into education, but where technology and innovation and strength and power and love and new stuff is coming directly out of teachers. That's what I'm really excited about. I think it's sort of like the big challenge, the big wall. Um, I can also be ridiculously wordy and loquacious, so please, y'all, um, cut me off at any time. I'll, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll talk forever. So Peggy is mentioning Will Richardson's new book. I haven't read it yet, but it's prompting a thought for me. Because in that panel discussion, I felt like you played a, a unique role. I think in your own career you're playing a unique role, which is a willingness to actually model and go and do uh, not just the talk, but to actually kind of really reshape your own work. Um, to reflect that beyond top-down. Is there a degree to which maybe even our little echo chamber community has trouble in getting to the next step of actually doing something as creative and independent as you're doing? I can't speak for anyone else, but what I can say is this. I found in my own work, um, both in public school and in private school, that whatever the situation came up, I, I just could not work um, or I couldn't work most effectively within the constraints of curriculum. Um, it just didn't work for me. That, that doesn't say that it doesn't work for some people. I, I mean, go, go for it. But for me personally, what I wanted to do, what I saw happening in the innovation community, what I saw happening in the maker community, what I saw happening in the entrepreneur community, um, the social entrepreneur community specifically, um, I, I, I just couldn't find a way to make that work in a, as complete a way as I wanted to within the bounds of curriculum. And so I, I really sort of poured over how can I how, how can I how, how can I do this in, in the way that I want to, and that's where sort of the idea of getting sort of really deeply involved in the after-school space opened up, and I I see it playing a really vital role that's both outside the curriculum and particularly where I am now in Baltimore City working with urban education. That time period between the end of school and dusk is when so many kids are getting into so much trouble of one sort or another. And these are kids who are born innovators. They have so much pent up creativity that's being often stifled in the classroom or they're just bored stiff. So I want to work with those kids. I want to work with their teachers to create the kind of maker and DIY experiences that um, that I've just seen through the art community and through sort of the creative community as really exciting. That's, that, that's where I want to be working with kids. So how much of this does relate to your own background, um, especially, say, as a musician? How much of that do you think gives you a unique perspective? I would say that the, for me the most um, 
the, the thing that I think where my perspective is coming from is uh, literally like being from Baltimore. Like Baltimore is a weird city. I've grown up here my entire life. Um, it's really scrappy. It's always sort of been seen under the heel of a lot of the other big cities that surround it. Um, it, it comes from this really tough industrial culture that was really demolished through through the 1980s. Um, you know, at, at one point, Baltimore was the heroin capital of North America. Um, more people probably have an idea of what Baltimore is by watching The Wire than anything else. And so, for me, you know, this is my home, and I really see um, those sorts of experiences as shaping my my worldview. I, I have a really sort of hyper local worldview when it comes to all these things, and um, I, I would say, yeah, I, I'm a, I, I, I've, I've worked in the arts, I've worked in music, but here in town, that, that, that's for folks my age, uh, guys and gals, that's not really all that weird. We all kind of did that stuff. And a lot of us became teachers or we opened up little stores or whatever. That's just sort of like in the culture of where I grew up and here in Baltimore. And so a lot of maybe the ideas um, that we've had in developing sort of like this after-school innovation community with kids and with teachers has to do with the fact that, um, you know, I, I can't say that this would necessarily have worked someplace else. I, I, I think that for us, this was the type of thing that really made a lot of sense given the culture of our city. So tell us about Digital Harbor. Uh, I'm not fully clear on the history. It seems as though you left to become co-director, but it was already in existence. Can you kind of explain what Digital Harbor is and in the role you're playing? The foundation was organized um, just last year, in 2011. And the vision that the board had was that we needed a way uh, to develop um, developers, coders, designers, people involved in technology to actually take a role in our local tech economy, number one. Number two, to actually instigate innovation, new ideas, and entrepreneurship at the student level um, and give kids a way to explore that. Uh, myself and my co-director, Andrew Coy, Andrew was a teacher at a high school here in Baltimore, um, we met with the original team and they said, look, um, we think you're the guys who can sort of take this forward, um, here are the keys, uh, take it for a spin and see what happens. And that's essentially what we did. And so over the last nine months or so, um, we have um, initiated uh, a series of programs uh, here in Baltimore. The first was a teacher fellowship centered around uh, technology training for teachers and um, experimentation and innovation um, 
sort of a, a, a cohort lab experience for teachers to really try out some crazy ideas. Uh, we connected them directly with technologists to build new open source technology. Um, we taught teachers um, basics of coding for the web. Uh, we built iOS apps together. Um, we looked at the kinds of problems, the pain points that exist in their classrooms, and we came up with both technological solutions and community solutions to try to fix some of those things. And then um, Baltimore was in a situation where the um, city government was closing 30-some rec centers throughout the city for budget reasons. So we worked together with a high school and an elementary school uh, in the city uh, to uh, save two of them and turn them from sort of a rec center into uh, a tech center that would serve as a nonprofit, community-oriented place for students to learn tech skills and to be able to explore making things both on the web and physically with like rapid prototyping and 3D printing and CNC mill uh, operation and also bringing in adults in the evening uh, to be mentored by the kids in the program on digital literacy and how to read data and understanding data visualization and the kinds of things that our communities desperately need here in the city. Uh, that's the sort of programming that we're running. And it's all based around teachers, students, and local technologists working together to make it happen. It sounds like a great program. And I, uh, I hear really positive things about it. I'm intrigued that in the material online, in the description you've just given, that uh, I haven't heard the word parent. So I'm a, what is the role of the parents, and sort of how are you viewing your relationship with parents? Yeah, in two ways. One is that um, in sort of reprogramming these rec centers, um, we're working directly with, uh, we put together sort of steering committees of parents um, in those neighborhoods. Uh, to decide what kind of programming happens in those places um, and what kind of skills um, we, we want to teach, what, what kind of things we want to do. But secondly, and this is the part that I'm pretty jazzed about, is that we've created a reverse mentoring program where the kinds of digital literacy experiences that kids are going through during the after-school program, we're then pulling kids from that program in the evening to work directly with their own parents um, to build digital literacy um, for them. So we're, we're sort of building digital literacy. We're involving the adults in, in the neighborhoods and communities in what we're doing by having them working with their own kids. So um, Dr. Timothy asks, how democratic is the organization from the student standpoint? Can you hear me there? Okay. Uh, we, we've organized um, a year-long uh, STEM league, is what we're calling it. Um, basically, we've identified uh, four um, 
technology and hands-on related fields that there are job openings available for uh, kids coming directly out of high school here in Baltimore. Um, those fields are uh, web design and development, uh, cybersecurity, um, industrial design and rapid prototyping, and uh, mobile app development. We've been working with people locally in those businesses, in those industries, to identify the kinds of um, things that would make it attractive for them to give both paid internships and potentially hire kids directly out of high school to get into those jobs. Um, and th these are all uh, inner city uh, high school kids in Baltimore uh, that we're looking to place with these places. And we're not looking for paperwork jobs. You know, we're not looking for, you know, um, menial jobs. I mean, we, we want um, kids getting, we, we want kids getting paid to think, right? Uh, here in Baltimore, kids get paid for doing plenty of other things. Um, we, we want kids using their brains and understanding they can get paid to do that and carry out real careers um, and move forward. Um, we're very dedicated to that workforce development aspect. So I can't tell if it's my bad connection or if you cut off there. If I'm talking over you, I apologize. So it sounds like the, the, it's democratic in the sense that the learning is self-driven by the students. But I'm wondering if the question from Dr. Timothy was, are the students involved organizationally in Digital Harbor? So here I was thinking that this was my weak connection, but here, it's I, like I, you I dropped I, off there. Yeah, I, I dropped off. Can you guys hear me now? We can. Do you want me to repeat my question? So Shelley, I'm going to repeat my question just in case you didn't hear it. So uh, it sounds like the students are kind of self-driven in terms of what they're what they work on in their interests. I'm thinking that maybe Dr. Timothy's question was, is there a role for the students in the um, actual running of Digital Harbor? It looks like your microphone is off. OK, there. Uh, so we have a student web design program that is um, entirely uh, run by students. Um, we trained uh, a number of students last year in our pilot program and um, actually took one of them on um, as a hire uh, when, when he graduated um, this past year. And he works directly with students um, where the students, uh, we basically uh, help them link up with clients, uh, particularly in the nonprofit world uh, here locally, who need websites. And then the students themselves uh, have complete creative control and are on their own to fulfill these jobs. We mentor them when they need it. We link them to technologists to help out uh, on tricky spots. Um, but essentially, uh, when it comes down to it, um, the students uh, most of whom are between 9th and 11th grade, 
are responsible for uh, taking on these jobs, working with the clients, and uh, running the student web design program. Peggy wants to know, how is the foundation funded? Um, we are a nonprofit, and we are entirely funded uh, thus far uh, through um, generous contributions from uh, foundations and private individuals, um, most notably for us locally, uh, an organization called the ABLE Foundation uh, gave us the grant uh, to really get this thing off the ground. And we've worked with um, sponsors uh, through the local community uh, to sponsor events for the kids to take part in. So for example, if we have a cybersecurity challenge, uh, that would constitute a six-week event that the kids would take part in, um, where from the beginning, they would get sort of a big challenge, uh, a challenge question that comes directly from the local cybersecurity um, industry. Um, and then they have six weeks to solve the problem. Um, in that case, uh, people within that industry would help sponsor uh, teams, help sponsor uh, the kind of money that's involved in getting equipment, and um, they would volunteer um, mentors uh, to come into the after-school programs to work with the kids. So clearly you're addressing some really significant needs um, for these youth in particular, and you've, you've chosen to do so outside of kind of the normal school structure uh, in order to do it. Is, is this about serving those individual kids, or is it also kind of a platform for change? And if it's a platform for change, how do you see the change spreading? I see it as both, um, because I see the kids involved in the change. Um, and I, I would say, um, you know, what, what these kids do and what the teachers in the program do um, is they make stuff. Um, they, they're creating new things and they're making connections directly with the communities that they live in. So in that way, our goal is to change, you know, are, are we going to change like the whole education system and, and all of that? Um, I'm much more interested in working with these kids and getting them involved in real jobs, solving problems in our communities than I am with the ins and outs of what goes on with the school district. Um, the fact that we're working after school with these kids provides the luxury that we're able to do that. Um, what kind of change will come out of it? I, I, I'm not going to predict that, but um, you, you know, let, let's wait and see. Uh, it was really, it's really interesting to have you on the show immediately after Pat Ferenga, because Pat's description of John Holt as an educator and then becoming convinced that he could not actually change or help reform education and, and had to 
advocate a complete supplanting of it. I'm, I'm wondering if there isn't sort of an interesting pattern that all of us are going to have to grapple with here of a change from the inside versus the outside. Um, Irene wants to know to what degree do students achieve mastery in the skills they learn? Yeah, that's a good question because frankly for a lot of the students that we're working with, uh, we have to really build up um, you know, some standard stuff like math skills. Um, and uh, so mastery to me um, is sort of relative in the sense that, you know, I don't have someone standing over me saying that mastery is a certain score on a test. What I have is a community member maybe getting a website built or a community member um, maybe looking to uh, get an intern um, who's interested in making mobile apps. Um, and so mastery to me is really can you place the kid in that situation and the kid has the necessary skills, both hard skills and soft skills to be able to, to navigate and be successful, whatever success means. So I, mastery is one of those terms that I, in a way, like I, I don't want to like mean the term, but it's like a very schooly term where I, I've never been asked by anybody um, if I had mastery of a skill set. Um, you, you just do it. And if anything, I think that these kids have a lot of savvy. Uh, they're good improvisers. They work quick on their feet. And um, we're teaching them how to teach themselves to learn. Um, if you answered this before, I apologize, but I wasn't sure I fully heard the answer. Marion wanted to know uh, to what degree your sponsors are businesses that are involved in technology. Um, we have, uh, so on the one hand, we have nonprofit foundations and private donors throughout the community. Um, sort of from every aspect of the city who donate towards the operation of these after-school centers and after-school programs. The um, STEM League challenges themselves, the competitions, the events, they are purposefully um, sponsored by um, local industries. Uh, and that's on purpose because what we're looking for is we want students to be mentored uh, by people in those industries who are looking for hires to come out of high school, and we want to actually place those kids in jobs. So, you know, it's not, sometimes there's like this education thing and then there's this workforce thing. Um, as far as the STEM League competitions um, being sponsored by businesses, the whole purpose of that is to create a work pipeline so that kids can get real jobs. Some of the questions in the chat have been answered in the chat. Um, here's one that I'm not sure was. Irene asks, how can this model be mainstreamed? How do we convince bureaucrats? My 
add on to that would be, is that even your goal? Like I said, to be honest, um, you know, because we're in this space with innovators, entrepreneurs, people in the tech uh, field locally, you know, I always hear constantly about scale, 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 scale. How are you going to scale this? How, how do you scale this program? How do you go national with the program? How do you do? And my reaction is what I said earlier, you know, I'm a Baltimore kid and I'm really interested in the kids in this city and my interest right now like my idea of scale right now is to get kids jobs and to remake neighborhoods that have been completely neglected by politicians and industry and the school district for that matter for the past 20, 30 years. Um, so how do I get it to, to like scale or how do I get through bureaucrats or is there an opportunity to go national with this? I'm literally just going neighborhood by neighborhood. Uh, me and Andrew are knocking on doors. We're, I think we've had coffee with just about every decision maker in the city. Um, we're talking constantly and, and, and you know, this is our game. This is what we do. And we understand that to get results for the kids that we've got to do this thing and we've got to hustle. Um, and that's sort of what's going on. Do we come up against bureaucracy? Absolutely. Do we come up against people who say, oh, this is great, and we'll give you a whole bunch of money, and you can do this, and then they never come through with anything? Yeah, that happens all the time. That's all part of it. It's not all roses. It's hard work. It, it is absolutely, um, I, I come back to my, my office sometimes, and I'm just like absolutely crushed and worn out and feel, you know, betrayed by people and then turn around and get a phone call and it's someone who wants to offer something, you know, like two days ago, three days ago, we had these guys from Carroll County, which, which is like a, a, a county up in northern Maryland, like, you know, like 45 minutes away, who were from a maker community and they thought what we were doing was really cool. They caught something that we were doing online and they just showed up with a van and gave us a used digital vinyl printer and the software that went with it to use in our makerspace. And that type of thing just keeps me going every single day. Um, and seeing what the kids are doing and seeing the kids say, you know, I want to do this. You know, what, what have you got for me? Like, what can we do? That's what drives this thing. Um, you know, so if it succeeds that, that on a big scale, uh, that, that, that's gravy. But right now, this is, this is neighborhood to neighborhood, and I would rather it be sort of maybe a model in the sense of you want to see what it looks like to do something like this, look at what we're doing, come to Baltimore, come visit with us, come hang out, hang out with the kids, meet the teachers, hang out with these steering committees with the parents, and, and see what's actually going on. Uh, rather than me say, I've got the solution. All you have to do is recreate this in St. Louis, and it'll be great. All you have to do is recreate this in Houston, it'll be great. I don't believe it will. I think you have to work hyper-locally. Okay, so somebody invites you to dinner, and they have no idea what you do, and they aren't involved in education at all. Uh, and you have about three minutes to kind of passionately tell them 
what it is you're doing. What do you say? What I say is here in Baltimore, we have a crisis situation with relation to the fact that our city is undergoing a change to becoming a tech economy, and yet we don't have either the workforce or the education necessary to create opportunities for the kids who actually live in this city to take part in the future economic and civic life of their own city. So we bring together students, teachers, local technologists to link together to create new opportunities. Innovation, technology, entrepreneurship, making stuff and learning as we're doing it. That's what we're, that, that's what we're interested in. We're interested in creating digital literacy. We're interested in inquiry-driven exploration and technology and maker culture and open source. All this stuff happening in the after-school space where we can serve a direct need of our community when it comes to the welfare of children, when it comes to safety issues, and when it comes to developing uh, communities that can, that can be a vital part of the future of our city. That's what we do. That was practiced enough that I'm guessing you say those words in all of those coffee meetings. I told you, we hustle. Okay, so um, the website seems to indicate that it's for K-12 students and for college graduates. And I assumed that the reason it doesn't say college students is that they're in school during the time that you're actively doing this. Was that a fair assumption? And Peggy follows it up with a question about, do you serve any kids who've dropped out of school? Okay, so um, the college kids, and actually we, we started with the idea of helping college kids who sort of are coming out of tech-related fields, whether that means computer science or whether it means going to art school and doing data visualization or web design, taking kids with sort of like a tech edge to them and helping them uh, get into the local work pipeline. Um, so that's sort of where we're working with college graduates. But what we've seen literally in like the past six months is that we've got a lot of um, tech businesses around here who are like, I don't have to wait for them to be college graduates. Give me kids who can code. Give me kids who can do design. Give me kids who can do UX and UI interface work. Like, I, I, just, I just want those kids. So in some ways, like that is kind of shifting. Um, in terms of, I saw something earlier in the chat um, about um, like how we're measuring this whole thing. Uh, so we have um, Johns Hopkins uh, is doing a third-party independent measurement of the success of the program throughout the entire year. So we're actually um, creating um, this big data pool related to uh, the effect of what we're doing on teacher retention, teacher leadership, uh, you know, not just like whether a teacher can use technology, but what effect that actually has culturally on teachers and how they now work in their schools mentoring others. And then on the kids, not only just building the tech skills, but looking at those soft skills, looking at leadership, looking at, you know, if kids come to this program, does, 
does that improve their attendance in school? If kids come to this program, are they not just getting better grades, but are they sort of functioning better? Are they coming together as civic actors in their communities? That They're the types of things that we're looking at, um, and they're the types of things that Hopkins is measuring. Um, so yeah, that, that sort of soft skills thing. And I'm, I'm sorry, there, there was something that the second part you asked. Ask me that again. About students who have dropped out of schools. Yeah, so the way it works is we have students through um, who come directly into sort of our flagship rec to tech centers. And then teachers in our fellowship program run satellite after school um, in their schools across the city. We have a cohort of 10 teachers this year doing this. We hit every quadrant of the city. Um, as for whether kids um, are dropouts or, or what, what have you, um, whatever we wind up with, we work with. So in the same way that, you know, if we get dropouts dropping into the rec centers and they want to learn, uh, if we if we get parents and kids coming in because they want to learn, if, I mean, we work with whoever walks in the door. That, that, that's, that's sort of uh, our mode of thinking about it. Of the things that you've described so far, Shelley, uh, what falls under the rubric or the, the name of the Ed Tech Link Program? So the Ed Tech Link Fellowship is a program that we run um, beginning in the summertime. We have a cohort of Baltimore City public school teachers from around the city representing, we actually had everyone from kindergarten up to 12th grade. Uh, we bring them together. Um, first thing we did, we actually sent them out to ISTE uh, to become sort of acclimated with the EdTech um, community at large on a real like person-to-person -person basis. Uh, we help them sort of meet people, talk to people, see things in person. None of the teachers had ever had an experience like that before and then came back here and started working on stuff. 40 hours a week, um, five days a week for uh, six weeks. Uh, we work with them building from basic tech proficiencies like uh, designing web pages, understanding basics of coding uh, in you know, HTML, CSS, right up through um, uh, building, uh, le learning how to code and build their own iOS apps, um, sort of giving some like hard tech skills to them, but also even more importantly, importantly like connecting them with technologists who can work with them uh, to develop new education technologies. We've been concentrating on open source and we've been concentrating on free iOS apps um, and the technologist time has been volunteer. The basic idea is I see us in a situation now where unlike 
sort of where teachers have been for a long time, teachers have many more ladders available to them in terms of their career. It used to be you entered the classroom and maybe you stayed a classroom teacher, maybe you became chairman of your department, maybe you went the admin route. Um, but now I, I see far more opportunities for teachers to branch out, teachers becoming teacherpreneurs or edupreneurs and creating their own companies, whether they are social enterprises or whether they are for-profit companies and everything in between related to technology, related to programming, related to the after-school space, related to tutoring, um, some really interesting stuff happening at the pre-K level. Um, so many more opportunities through the kind of network that I think all of us have been creating, have been working on for the past several years uh, are now sort of flourishing into new ways of thinking about what it means to be an educator. And I saw that uh, Will Richardson's new book was mentioned earlier, and I think what, what he's getting at there is that, you know, the notion of what school is and what school has to be and where teachers fit into that, we're in a lot of flux right now. And for all the arguments back and forth, do we need school buildings or can we all go online? I think they're pretty simplistic arguments. I think where we are really headed is towards a, sort of a face-to-face -face with the coming of very radical new technologies that are going to shift boundaries um, regarding the way that we um, connect with digital material. Um, it's going to have cultural impact, social impact, and it's going to have a, a measurable impact on what it is that we call education. Um, the teaching profession sort of sits in the midst of all of that chaos right now. Um, and am I saying, well, revolution and all schools must end and all this sort of thing? No, I, I think that's a bunch of bunk. But I do think that we have revolutionary new opportunities and ways of thinking about ourselves as educators that are even much more um, radical than sort of what I consider relatively simplistic notions about whether or not we're going to have school buildings or not. Um, I'm really interested in seeing where all these really intelligent and savvy teachers and students go with, 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 with this, with this coming onslaught of the new. I'm going to make an argument here, and I'm not really sure how I feel about it, but let me propose it and see how you respond. So schools exist as a system, and as such, there are decision-making aspects to uh, the, the running of schools and, and thinking about education. And there are, are groups of people who are used to being the ones who determine what takes place in school. I have a really hard time seeing the change that you're describing um, coming from the existing decision-making structure. And if that's true, in the absence of that, how do we envision that, that these changes would take place? Uh, if they don't come from existing sort of top-down determinations of what school is? Well, I mean, you're talking about sort of big systematic thinking. And 
one of the things that's usually neglected in the argument, right, you, you've got the argument between districts and charter schools, or you get the argument between um, sort of the unionized teachers and non-unionized teachers, or you get the arguments between, um, you, know, you know, districts and the way they approach even things like online learning and the way that sort of for-profits and um, corporations approach that sort of thing. And I'm just honestly sort of annoyed endlessly by the ongoing bickering back and forth between all that. And I see a great opportunity for really interesting third sector, nonprofit, radically reorganized community activism to happen in the education space. And I would point towards the coming higher ed bubble. You know, when we have students graduating with $100,000 in debt who can't get jobs, um, and colleges and universities increasing their tuition year in and year out, eventually that bubble is going to burst. And I can't think of any bigger bureaucracy than the sort of various uh, regencies of higher ed through this country. Um, if that bubble can burst and those bureaucracies are going to have to deal with it, I, I see that happening potentially across the board. Um, I think that it might be not too far reached to say that um, things might come in to supersede many of the stresses upon the system. I think it might be more of a stress to say that the system itself necessarily has to be the one involved in the decision-making process. I think if we empower parents, empower teachers and students to work in different ways, um, it's systems that are inflexible that are going to find themselves back on their heels. This sure feels like a fascinating period of time, and I'm really appreciative of your being part of the dialogue. I have to finish on time tonight because of my travel schedule, so I want to make sure that if we have questions, unlike Tuesday night, we don't have to stay later or, or ask you to answer them by email. So if you've got a question for Shelley, um, Andrew, I see you're in the room, and I'm sorry I didn't do this earlier, but I'm going to promote you to moderator and give you a chance to say hi. I don't know if you're familiar with the system, but if you want to click on the talk button, your mic will turn on. I'd love to hear a little from you. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I'm actually out in Columbus, Ohio right now, uh, and I'm glad I can join on. So Andrew uh, and Shelley, Marion wants to know how you recruit the technologists. Andrew, uh, well, I can speak to that. Yeah, take that yeah I'll speak to that for just a minute. Uh, you, you really have to start by living in their world a little bit, you know. Uh, we need people who are cross-disciplinary. And, and by attending different events that they put on. So meetup.com is an absolutely amazing site for these different technology meetups that happen all over the place. I mean, we're out here in Columbus working, you know, with the school and helping then get off the ground with a, an after-school technology program, um, you know, through through our web slam. And we've just shown up at different tech sectors that have, you know, these events that they put on. So so starting to become familiar with, with what technologists do and how they network and where they network. I mean, social media is huge for that, uh, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Meetup. And, and then just 
spending time at the hackathons where where things are made and people just do it because they love it. If you've got a question for Andrew or for Shelley, please feel free to put it in the chat or you can raise your hand and I'll give you the microphone. We're a small enough group here that nobody should feel shy. So Nikki asks, how did your program integrate the disabled students who may or may not know how to work with assistive technology? In those I'll go ahead and, 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 and you want to go for that? Sure. In, in those situations, you know, we use the technology that's available or we work with local technologists to hack new things to make it available uh, for those kids. We, we have a programmer who works with us by the name of Kyle Fritz, who's a brilliant um, hacker and uh, designer whose brother has, I think it's ALS or something along that line. He, he's, um, he, he, he's stuck in a wheelchair, has very limited mobility, but he's a, a super bright kid. Um, and Kyle has completely hacked Arduinos and iPhones to run all of anything connected in his house, uh, from the lights to the front door to the television to the computer. To, it, it's all connected, and Kyle can even remotely turn on and off things uh, at um, his house. Uh, out, I think he's in college in Ohio from here in Baltimore. So we have people in the community who, even if we can't find existing technologies, or if those technologies are prohibitively expensive, we'll figure out a way to, to, to make those technologies so that any kid who wants to can take part in what we're doing. Well, and, and one of our uh, board of trustee members is actually the head of what's called the Kennedy Krieger Institute that specifically works with autistic uh, students along, you know, pretty far along the spectrum. And, and he's been, you know, integrating different tools into the, the school system and actually studying their effectiveness. But one, one project that came out of an education hack day that we put on a year ago was a, what's called BoardSpeak. Um, but it essentially let the user define a set of icons um, that they could take photos of things themselves and, and then it could have uh, text-to-speech. Uh, so, so this, you know, an autistic uh, individual could actually take a photo of their own chair because a lot of times even iconic representations of things for, for students along the spectrum are, are difficult, but a student could take a picture of their own chair. If they wanted it, they could hit it and it would actually speak aloud and say whatever the phrase was that was predetermined. You know, so using technology as a tool to, to address some of those things, you know, is incredibly powerful. And you, you see it even with other types of things, whether it's dyslexia, um, you know, or, or other potential, you know, just disabilities that, that can be overcome through new ways to utilize existing technology. Thanks, Andrew. So uh, let's wrap it up here. It will reduce my stress level if I can <laughs> be done. <laughs> I, let me thank you both. Uh, um, Shelley, uh, I really appreciate your reaching out to me and coming on the show. I'm applauding for you. I think my takeaway is that you are if the question is scale, you're modeling an independence of thinking that, it, that ultimately would be the gift 
you give to the larger community. And so I want to thank you personally for it. I think it's uh, inspiring and interesting. And thanks, Andy, Andrew. Appreciate your coming on as well. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, everybody. Uh, see you all on Twitter. Okay, don't miss uh, our upcoming sessions, or at least consider joining us for something coming up. Thanks to Shelley and Andrew. Thanks to you for attending. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. Bye now. Thank you. Goodbye.